Well, as you know, our time in the Word tonight is going to revolve around the questions that you have turned in, so we won't uh, be in one passage in particular, but be bouncing around. So take your Bible and be prepared to uh, turn from page to page, depending on what text we are in, uh, especially one of the questions. We'll need to look at three or four passages to adequately answer it. Um, but uh, we'll jump right in and uh, see how far we can get here with these questions. I appreciate those who uh, submitted these. Always good questions, good thought-provoking issues to uh, consider. So here's the first question. It says, I've always heard that Pentecost happens 50 days after Passover, i.e. in the springtime. But according to Leviticus 23, 9 to 22, Numbers 28, 26 to 31, and it seems Deuteronomy 16, 9 to 12, Pentecost happens 50 days after you begin to gather the first fruits of your crops. I don't see any connection to Passover. It seems like it would happen much later in the year. So when is it? A couple introductory thoughts, and then I'll answer the question. One of the reasons why this may be confusing to you is because you are, you're correct, by the way, that it's uh, 50 days after you begin to gather the first fruits of your crops. Uh, So you're thinking it's much later in the year because you're thinking as a Montanan. Because when do we harvest our crops? It's in the fall. Well, in Israel, they harvest their crops in the spring uh, because they plant in the fall, and then the only rain that you get in Israel is typically in December, January, February, maybe a little bit in March. So that's the rain for your crops, and so you're harvesting your crops in March or maybe April. Uh, I remember the first time I went to Israel uh, and seeing them harvest, and this was so confusing to me. I, I thought, well... Hold it, they're completely backwards. Well, it's just the way it works there because of their rains, when they get rains and when they don't get them. So uh, you are correct that Pentecost happens 50 days after you begin to gather the first fruits of your crops, but they do do that in the spring. So uh, because, again, of the rain cycles, one thing you can just about guarantee in the land of Israel is that from about May, May, June, July, August, September, and October, you will get no rain anywhere in the land of Israel. So, uh, as I said, the rains only begin usually November, possibly December, January, uh, February, March a little bit, and then they really peter out. So they do plant in the fall. They reap the harvest in the spring. So uh, why is it often connected with Passover or 50 days after Passover? Uh, First of all, you are correct that most accurately or most technically, it is 50 days after you begin to gather the first fruits of your crops. But here's the interesting thing. Passover occurs on the 14th of Nisan. That's Jewish calendar. And that falls for us March or April, depending on it can fall late March or early April because their months don't line up with our months, all right? So March or April. So the 14th of Nisan, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread begins the next day, the 15th, and runs through the 21st of Nisan, so it's basically a week. But the uh, holiday of first fruits begins on the 16th of Nisan. So, Passover the 14th, unleavened bread begins the next day, the 15th, and that runs for about a week, and then first fruits the 16th. So that is why there is a connection to Passover. It's often stated that Pentecost occurs 50 days after Passover, the more technical Description is it's 50 days after 
barley harvest or the beginning, the first fruits of barley harvest. So uh, that's why you have often heard, and I have too, and I'm sure many in here, that Pentecost is 50 days after Passover. That's not the most technically correct answer, but it's so close within a day or two. That's why it's easier to remember. You go Passover 50 days later, day of Pentecost. In fact, it's even a little more technical than that because if you read it, and I read these passages that you alluded to this afternoon, and it's like the Sabbath day after the seven weeks, 49 days. I mean, it's, it's a pretty technical thing, but it's basically 50 days, but it doesn't always come out exactly at 50 days. So in answer to your question, when is it? Uh, it typically occurs in May or June, depending on, again, the, 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 the months don't line up exactly with us, but Passover is March or April, and roughly 50 days later or 50 days from first fruits, it will fall in May or June, and uh, uh, that is when Pentecost occurs. All right, next question uh, says this, um, can you please explain Genesis chapter 6, verse Four. So let's go back there to Genesis chapter 6, and this is uh, uh, one of the questions that will take a little bit more effort on our part to unravel it. So let's go back and look at Genesis chapter 6, and we'll skip over to three passages, or two or three, in the New Testament to help answer this question. So Genesis chapter 6, verse 4, There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. So we back up to find out what is this talking about. So let's just back up to verse 1. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born of them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose." So the beginning point is, who are the sons of God? If we had time, and I'm not going to turn to all the passages, but if you were to go over to the book of Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2, this Hebrew expression, B'nai Elohim, is used in reference to spirit beings. Uh, It's not used often in Hebrew scripture, but the only times where it is used, it refers to spirit beings. So it's a pretty safe assumption that it's referring to spirit beings here. So what this would be saying is, that the sons of God, Bene Elohim, that is, that is uh, spirit beings, fallen angels, took human form, and they took human wives and married those human wives. And in fact, verse 2 says that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, they took wives, etc. So you can see the contrast that's being made there. One group was the sons of God, the other group the daughters of men. One group was spirit beings, the other was human beings. Now maybe you're wondering, well, how could spirit beings take on human form and actually just live as a human functioning in life, marrying women, etc. Well, again, we won't take the time, but uh, you can just jot down a note. Genesis 18, just a few chapters later, you see angels who come to visit Abraham, and they sit down, they talk, they eat. I mean, they're functioning as humans. So in Genesis 18, we see an example of that, and then on into Genesis chapter 19. So here, you just, the, the, the individuals in Genesis 18 and 19 are clearly two angels, but they had taken the form of men, they walked like men, they talked like men, they ate like men, they functioned like men, but they were spirit beings, and in this case, angels. So it's not impossible to see how the spirit beings in Genesis 6 were able to take on human form and marry women. So that is what I believe is going on there. 
So what happened? What, what are they trying to do? Well, again, you, we have to go outside of Scripture a little bit, or outside of this text of Scripture, to add more details. So to uh, get an idea of what happened in this situation, turn over to the New Testament, book of Jude, the very the second to the last book of the New Testament, Jude. And notice what Jude says here about this. Verse 5, in Jude, if you're familiar with the book, he is um, predicting judgment for ungodly men, specifically ungodly teachers, false teachers, apostates, etc. And so he wants to give some examples of judgment. And so he says, but I want to remind you, verse 5, that though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And, so that's his first example of judgment, the evil, unbelieving people who experienced deliverance from Egypt. Then his second example is the one that interests us in relation to Genesis 6. And, verse 6, the angels who did not keep their proper domain, they did not keep their own domain, but left their own abode. He has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now, notice what Jude says here. This is not a description of the original sin in which one-third of the angels went with Satan. Because here, he says, he has reserved them in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So basically, he is saying, these spirit beings, these angels that he has in mind, are not free to roam around. We know that's not true of all the demons. Most are free to roam around. But this particular group of demons is not free. They are being held and preserved for judgment. They did not keep their own domain. They left their own abode. What does that refer to? Well, the next verse gives us more details. Verse 7, as, now notice the comparison here, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and have gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So here, Jude says, the angels of verse 6 did as Sodom and Gomorrah did. They gave themselves over to sexual immorality and went after strange flesh. So just as Sodom and Gomorrah, the men of Sodom and Gomorrah, didn't keep their own domain and left their abode by giving themselves over to homosexuality, these angels did not keep their own domain and they left their own abode by cohabiting with women in Genesis 6. 2 Peter 2 says the same thing. Go back to the left. The second Peter, chapter 2, Peter is also assuring his readers that sin doesn't go unpunished, and he uses one of the same examples that Jude uses. Notice second Peter, chapter 2, verse 4. He says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to, now we have a lot of different translations here. The literal Greek word is Tartarus. So cast them down to Tartarus. My translation says hell, which is an unfortunate translation. This is not the Greek word Gehenna, which is translated hell. This is Tartarus. So he cast them to Tartarus and delivered them into chains of darkness. Now watch, to be reserved for judgment. Again, they're being held for a coming judgment. So this is not saying that the angels who rebel with Satan were judged by God and cast into hell. Demons are not in hell today. They are free to roam about and wreak havoc in the world and in people's lives. 
So that's not what Peter is describing. He's describing the same thing that Jude described. He doesn't use the term Hades here. He doesn't use the term Gehenna here. He says these demons are being held in Tartarus, which is the Greek word here, and they are awaiting future judgment. So to what group of angels is Peter referring? Well, notice what he says. Verse 5, the next verse. He says, And did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. Now notice what Peter does here. He has mentioned a group of angels who sinned, and then he mentioned the example of the people in Noah's day, and then he has brought up the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, like Jude did. Now, all three of those are somewhat related in that the angels of Genesis 6 did not keep their own domain. They left their abode just as the people of Sodom and Gomorrah would do years later. So all of that is strong reason to believe that the angels to which Peter is referring here is the group of angels in Genesis 6 who cohabited with women. So, let's just pause for a second to see what we've pieced together thus far. If you add up all of this thus far, the phrase sons of God in Genesis 6, the description of angels who did not keep their own domain and left their own abode, the mention of going after strange flesh like Sodom and Gomorrah, and the grouping of these angels with the events preceding the flood, the evidence seems to point to the conclusion that Genesis 6 is telling about angels or demons who cohabited with women in an attempt by Satan to destroy the Messianic line. Now, there's another passage we need to look at, and it's 1 Peter chapter 3. So go back a little bit to the left to 1 Peter chapter 3. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, by which also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, what spirits, Peter, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah. Now pause there for just a second. As you probably know, this passage is another one that is used to support all sorts of beliefs and dogmas. Some take this passage to say that Jesus preached to people who were in hell to give them a second chance to believe and be saved, which would contradict Scripture. Others take this passage as support for the view that Jesus went to hell for a while. That's even found its way into some creeds that Jesus went to hell as a part of paying for our sins, even though he said on the cross, it is finished, paid in full. So neither of those ideas is supported by this passage. Notice the verse 19 says, Jesus went and preached to the spirits in prison. The term spirits, when used in the New Testament without further definition or modifying adjectives, refers to angels or demons. Now, sometimes it will have further modifying adjectives or or definition like the spirits of men. But if it's just used without further definition or modifying adjectives, it refers to angels or demons. So the spirits being referred to here are not the spirits of men. They are demonic spirits. And notice what the verse says, Jesus preached to them. Interestingly, the word preached in this verse is not the verb for preaching the gospel. This is not euangelizomai from 
evangelize or to preach the gospel. This word means to make an announcement or make a proclamation. So verse 19 says, Jesus made a proclamation. He made an announcement to the spirits in prison. What spirits? Verse 20 answers that by saying the ones who formerly were disobedient back when the long-suffering of God waited patiently in the days of Noah, and that takes us right back to Genesis 6. So this would be the spirits who in Genesis 6 cohabited with women and were judged by God by being thrown into prison or Tartarus to await future judgment. Jesus made an announcement or a proclamation to these spirits in prison. When did he do this? Notice verse 18. It says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being, being alive in the spirit. Now, here's some technical uh, issues in this verse. The New King James and the NIV capitalize the word spirit here at the end of this verse. NASB does not. ESV, yes, capitalize or not capitalize? No. So ESV does not. NASB does not. New King James does. NIV does. The context argues for not capitalizing the word. This is, in my opinion, not referring to the Holy Spirit, but rather to the human spirit of Jesus. This is, that's the contrast in this verse. Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in his spirit, small s. When Jesus was put to death in the flesh, his human spirit was still alive. That's why he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. His spirit was still alive. And verse 19 tells us that in or by his human spirit, he went and preached to the spirits in prison. So let me pull all of this information together. The Lord Jesus, between his death and resurrection, while dead in the flesh, but acting in his spiritual nature, the Lagos and human spirit united, went to the place of confined angels. There he announced judgment for them, which he had just accomplished and sealed at the cross. So I believe that's what's happening in Genesis 6. Now let's go back there just to specifically answer that statement in verse 4. So Genesis 6 is describing a very unique event with added information from 1 Peter, 2 Peter, and Jude. So it's describing this cohabitation of fallen spirits taking human form, cohabiting with women. And then verse 4 says there were giants on the earth in those days. The literal Hebrew here is Nephilim, which means just generally mighty ones, all right? It is a, a Hebrew term that refers to mighty ones. Now, you need to understand that it means mighty ones, and it is used here to refer to the offspring of the demons and the women but it is just a general term, so the term is used elsewhere in Hebrew Scripture. In other words, I'm not suggesting that you can only use the term Nephilim to describe this offspring, but here it is used to refer to the, or describe the offspring, because it's also used later in Scripture to refer to giants, mighty ones. It's literally what it means, mighty ones. So what seems to be uh, being said here in Genesis 6 is that the result of this offspring between the demons and the, the women was 
their offspring were, how are we going to use plural, that their babies were mighty ones. That that, as a result of this cohabitation, that the offspring was unique, very mighty ones. Some Hebrew grammars even use the term fallen ones, interesting, as the definition of Nephilim. So that, I think, is what verse 4 is talking about, is that when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. So those were the Nephilim, but again, not the only time that Hebrew word is used, because it's used to refer to other giants or mighty men, but here used in this context to describe this offspring. So I think that's what Genesis 6-4 is saying. It obviously is a tough passage, and there are views about it being different lines, uh, uh, you know, the line of of Adam's sons, etc., but I, I think all the information points to that. So that, that would be the view that I would hold to. All right, next question is this. Um, this came from a young man who talked to me after the service this morning who's interacting with a friend of his, uh, and they're having this debate, if you will. But he, So he says, do you have to be baptized to be saved? I know it is by faith alone. But some friends of mine believe you do, and basically they've said, I am not a true Christian because I haven't been baptized yet. And he also provided some scripture to back up his point. And so he lists some of the passages uh, that his friend is sending him to to sort of defend or prove his point. Uh, We won't turn to all of these. I'll just mention them, but we'll turn to a couple other passages. Uh, One is Mark 16, 16, uh, and it is a passage... uh, I don't want to get into this here because we're coming up on Mark 16 and I'm going to explain a lot more about textual criticism. But it's a passage that you're just not wise to base any unique doctrine on because of its being questionable as far as textual criticism is concerned. But even if you think the longer ending of Mark is part of the original canon, Mark 16 talks about being baptized, but it clearly says that the ones who are condemned are those who don't believe. Again, we'll talk more about that when we get to Mark 16. But some of the other verses that his friend is using are like Matthew 28. Go into all the world, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them. Uh, Acts, several passages in Acts where people were baptized. John 1, where John the baptizer was baptizing. So his friend is using these passages. And this would be my response. If you look at those passages, uh, all of them, the, the only one that you can even really try to use to support baptismal regeneration is Mark 16, 16, which has a very easy explanation, but may not even have been a part of the original canon. But all the other passages, all they are showing is the importance of baptism in the first century for believers. And no Christian should deny that. That is true. I mean, baptism was very important, still is very important. It should be important to us. But the verses don't teach baptismal regeneration. They just show that baptism was important. In fact, one of the verses listed here is Matthew 3.16 where Jesus was baptized. So this young man's friend is trying to use Matthew 3.16 to support baptismal regeneration, which is an awful verse to use because basically what you're saying is Jesus got baptized to get saved, to wash away his sins, and so baptism is efficacious. It'd be the exact wrong passage to use. And and the fact that Jesus was baptized ought to put to rest any thought in anyone's mind that baptism is what saves us. Because if baptism is what saves us, Jesus would have never been baptized. So it obviously has a different meaning. That's the point. Uh, So none of those verses, if you go, has a very 
easy explanation, but may not have even been a part of the canon. Um, but look at uh, just some of the most famous verses would, would, uh, would settle this issue. You're right when you say, I know it is by faith alone, but some say uh, that, you know, that I'm not a Christian because I haven't been baptized yet. Well, look at Ephesians 2. You know this verse probably, Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 8 and 9, Most, many of you have these verses memorized. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Not of works. No works. Whether it's church membership, baptism, communion, Lord's table, it's not of works. It is by grace through faith alone. Of course, one of the prime examples is the thief on the cross. Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. He, he was never baptized. Uh, but maybe the, maybe the strongest passage uh, in the New Testament on salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone is found in Romans 4. Look at this, uh, this passage with me, Romans chapter 4. And verse... Five, but to him who does not work. Now, he's just said in verse four, to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. In other words, if you're doing something to earn your salvation, then your salvation is not by grace. It's debt. God's obligated to save you because you did something to earn it. So to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. Verse five, this is, this is one of my favorite verses in the, all the New Testament because of its just crystal clarity but to him who does not work. And it means you don't work for your salvation. You don't do anything to try to earn it, gain it, merit it. To him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Now the reason why that verse is so important is because one, it emphasizes that it's by faith, it's believing, but it's that phrase that follows, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. Now notice what that is saying, beloved. What it's saying is this, when you believe in Christ and God declares you righteous, that's the technical term in theology is imputed righteousness, imputed righteousness, legal righteousness. So when you believe and you are declared righteous, That is a legal declaration. You are legally declared righteous, but at that time, what are you really? Look at the verse. You're ungodly. You are ungodly. But God says you're righteous. Say, now hold on, how can God do that? That seems like he's somehow jeopardizing his own righteousness, his justice. Well, of course, the answer is he can do that by the merit of Christ. So when you and I believe, God says you are righteous when in actuality we are ungodly. So justification, understand this, justification does not change what we are like. It doesn't change our character. Justification changes our legal standing with God. It changes that legal standing with God. And even though we are actually ungodly, At that moment, God says we are righteous. 
And that shows again that it is not by works. You don't have to get better, do better, get baptized. So you're, you're showing that you're turning over a new leaf. No, it's not by works. To him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited for righteousness. So God declares us righteous by faith alone, though we're ungodly. Now, we also know that those whom God justifies, he regenerates, and so he changes, and he doesn't leave us ungodly because he regenerates and gives us a new heart and begins to change us. But that is not, please hear this, that's not part of justification. That's part of regeneration and sanctification, but justification is a legal work of God. And so this, this is one of the strongest verses to show that whether someone tries to say, well, you're saved by baptism or you're saved by turning over a new leaf or, you know, trying to be a better person or through religious works, it is not, it is, it is specifically stated, it's to him who does not work but believes. So you are absolutely right. Don't let your friend or his friends convince you that you're not a true Christian because you haven't been baptized yet. Now, if you know the Lord, that's an important step to go ahead and be baptized, but you don't need to feel the pressure that, oh, I'm so, you know, if I die, I'm going to hell because I'm not a true Christian because I haven't been baptized yet. Because the New Testament is clear. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. All right, the next question says this. Let's turn to Matthew 27. Matthew 27. This is the chapter on the crucifixion. And here's the question. In Matthew 27, 46, Jesus on the cross says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is meant by this in light of his deity and unity with the Father? And how could we explain this to someone? Could we say that he was separated from the Father? Or is there a better way to describe this? I appreciate this question uh, because it is so central to the gospel, obviously, so core to the gospel. And you're right. Here in Matthew 27 is the record of the only time in all of eternity when there was a rupture of the perfect relationship of the members of the triune Godhead. Never before was there and never since Has there been and never again will there be a separation of any kind between the Father and the Son? But that's what happened on this occasion. When Jesus took our sin and became sin for us, God the Father poured out his holy and righteous wrath on his Son who was our substitute. Jesus was under the wrath of God, and as a result, he was alienated from God for the only time in all of eternity past present, or future. Specifically, look at verse 45. Now, from the sixth hour, that would be noon, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, that's three o'clock in the afternoon, there was darkness over all the land. By the way, not that we need these because we don't need these, but there are three independent accounts in history of this worldwide darkness that occurred at this time by unbelievers, three independent accounts. So there was worldwide darkness. 
And then verse 46, at about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now the first thing to notice about this statement, this is what you ask about this verse in particular, this statement by Jesus. You'll probably notice that the translation, when they tell you what Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani means, they have it in quotations or italicized or indented or something because this is a quote of Psalm 22.1. The entire psalm is a messianic psalm and part of it emphasizes the intense suffering of the Messiah. And so Jesus quotes from this psalm not that it's almost a rhetorical question. In other words, Jesus wasn't expecting an answer from heaven. Jesus quoted this to link himself or tie himself with Psalm 21 or Psalm 22 verse 1 or in the entire psalm because it's a messianic psalm. He was connecting himself with a messianic psalm which is another way of him affirming that he is the Messiah. So from noon until three in the afternoon Jesus was separated from his father relationally. The Son was separated from the Father because the Son became our substitute to experience the righteous wrath of God against sin. In the words of 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is when Jesus died spiritually. Now be careful here because I know that there are There are false teachers, prosperity teachers who use that phrase that Jesus died spiritually to deny that he died physically. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, Not at all. He died physically, but this is when he died spiritually. What is spiritual death? You remember, all the way back to Genesis, in the the day you eat of that tree, you shall surely die. Did Adam keel over? No. So spiritual death, obvious, is separation from God. That's why ultimate spiritual death, the second death, spiritual death, is separation from God for eternity. So Jesus died spiritually in the sense that he was separated from the Father relationally. Let me just expand on this a little further. It is, it's worth noting that this is the only time in all the life and ministry of Jesus that he did not address God as his Father. This is the only time. In the gospel records, there are, are you ready for this, 170 times in which Jesus addressed God as Father and 21 times when he addressed God as my Father. 170 times Father and 21 times my Father. That's almost 200 times. In the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17, which was just before the arrest of Jesus, and then, of course, he had his trials and his crucifixion. So we're talking about a short time before this. Jesus addressed God as Father in that high priestly prayer six times. Six times. But not here in verse 46. Instead, he said, my God, my God. During the time when Jesus was suffering under the wrath of God, he did not have, maybe you you ask, is there another way to explain this? Maybe this is another way to explain it. Jesus did not have a paternal relationship with God, but rather a judicial relationship with God. 
He was not relating to God as his father. He was relating to God as a righteous judge who was pouring out his wrath on sin. Now here's the other interesting thing. Jesus here says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he will say, and to get the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross, you have to combine all the gospel records because none of the gospel writers tell us all of them, and so you have to piece them together. But after this, Jesus said, one of his following statements was, it is finished. It is finished. And then that was followed by another statement. Do you remember what it was? Father. Father. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Why could he go back to saying, Father? Because he had just said, it is finished. Paid in full. He had finished drinking the cup of wrath. And so there was a switch, if you will, that took place from this judicial relationship with God back to paternal relationship with God as he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So that would be the way I would try to explain the unexplainable in Matthew chapter 27. All right, a couple more questions here, and then we'll call it, uh, call it a night here. Uh, next question says this. Uh, how do you develop the fruit of self-control without relying on your own strength when it's stuff that is hard and you have to muster up everything in you to force yourself to do it? I can't reconcile this or seem to access the Holy Spirit's power in times like these. It feels like it's all me, myself, trying to do it on my own, on my own strength with no help. Sure, everybody here can relate to that. So look at Galatians 2.20. This doesn't completely answer, but, but uh, just a few thoughts to try to address that. So my first response would say, when you get this one figured out, please let me know. It will really help me in my life and in, 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 in ministry. Uh, so it is extremely difficult to know how to understand or explain the interplay between us and the Lord, the Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit. Uh, and here's the reason I have us turn to Galatians 2. It appears that even the Apostle Paul could not completely unravel that mystery. Let me show you what I mean. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, he says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Now, if you stop there, you'd say, okay, what Paul is saying is it has nothing to do with me. I don't have any part in the Christian life. It's all Christ. He lives the Christian life through me. But Paul doesn't stop there. He says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I live, I now live in the flesh. I live. Now, it sounds like Paul's saying, now this is all up to me. This is the life I'm living. I'm living by faith. In the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So it appears that Paul here didn't know how to explain what was him and what was from the Lord. I mean, if you look at a passage like 1 Corinthians 9, it sounds pretty self-oriented. He said, I 1 Corinthians 9, 27, I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I preach to others I myself should become disqualified. Paul told Timothy, discipline yourself unto godliness. Sounds like it is all up to you. It's all up to me. And you read John 15 and you hear Jesus say, apart from me you can do nothing. Abide in me. 
you don't abide in me, you can't do anything. Oh, that sounds like it's all the Lord. So it, it is tough to totally, you know, totally grapple with what is how much of it's us, how much of it's the Lord. And one of the reasons why it may seem like such hard work is because developing spiritual disciplines such as self-control does involve our effort. And maybe the best analogy I can use, it's, it's much like developing a muscle. As you develop a muscle, any of you who've worked out, you know what this is like. You start working on something, it just appears that you're not making any progress. However, as you continue to work out, there comes a day when you realize, well, this isn't nearly as difficult as it used to be. I, re- I must be, by God's grace, I must be making progress here. Well, the Christian life is much the same way. As we work to develop self-control, and we have to work, we can't just be passive and say, oh, I hope I have self-control. No, as we work to develop self-control, as we also, as Paul talks about in Galatians 5.16, walk in the Spirit, you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. As we try the best we know how to, to abide in Christ and rely on Him, there comes a day sometimes when we realize, you know, it's not as difficult, by God's grace, for me to exercise self-control as it used to be. And that is because the Holy Spirit is enabling us, but it's also because we've developed that spiritual muscle. We've done the right thing enough times. It's sort of like, you know, if I were to drop this piece of paper down here uh, and I were to bend over to reach down for it, I would naturally, because I'm right-handed, I would reach down with my right hand. That's just what I would do. And if I knocked this microphone over, I'd reach down and grab it with my right hand. But if I wanted to strengthen my left arm, I would have to make a conscious effort. Brian, from now on, pick up everything with your left hand. Pick up everything with your left arm. So I'm making a conscious effort to strengthen that muscle. And if you do that long enough, there comes a time, you know what? It doesn't seem weird to reach down with your left hand or right hand if you happen to be left-handed. And again, that's the analogy that the New Testament often uses. That's why Paul says to Timothy, discipline yourself to godliness because as we exercise our own volition in the part of sanctification, recognizing, uh, as Paul said, I am what I am by the grace of God, that apart from the grace of God, we wouldn't be able to do that. But don't, don't expect to be able to unscramble that relationship. Just seek to do what the Lord tells you to do, acknowledging in your heart it's by the grace of God, and let him sort it out. But in time, it does become, I'm hesitant to use this phrase, but almost becomes more natural, uh, maybe not as much effort because it's more a part of our character because it's what we've done. We've exercised that spiritual muscle to make progress. All right, last question for the, the night says this. Uh, I almost laugh at this, not, not to laugh at the person, but because we can all relate to this. It says, if I'm not in God's will, that is, I'm not living the way I shouldn't, should be, I'm convicted of sin. If I actually do manage to do it right from time to time, I feel like I'm convicted of spiritual pride. Either way, I'm convicted. <laughs> Can't I ever be happy that I managed to be obedient? Being a Christian is frustrating sometimes. And again, we can all relate to that. It's like, well, when I know I'm not doing what the Lord wants, I feel guilty. I need to do it. And then when I'm doing what the Lord wants, I'm feeling really good about this. Well, you're a prideful person. It's like, how do you sort that out? Well, this would be my answer. Uh, Yes, being a Christian is frustrating at times, uh, but we can all relate to that. It it is very easy for us to take pride in our obedience. Um, But it's also frustrating to continually feel 
conviction for disobedience. You feel like you're never really cutting it. But here's the answer. Is it okay? You, this is what your question is. Can I ever be happy that I managed to be obedient? So here's the answer. It is okay and even good to be happy about your obedience. Now, how can I defend that biblically? Well, look at John 13 as we close. John 13. Jesus washes the disciples' feet in the early part of the chapter. He gives them an example of servanthood, how they should be. And notice what he says in verse 17. He says, If you know these things, and he's just been talking to them about servanthood. If you know these things, now I think almost all of our translations, and it's a good translation, say, blessed are you if you do them. And this reminds us, of course, of the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are the, those who mourn. They'll become blessed, blessed. Well, one of the meanings of that Greek word is happy. Not some kind of shallow, giddy happy, but a genuine happiness, a, a thankfulness, a contentment, a happiness. So happiness in the right sense. So in answer to your question, can I ever be happy that I managed to be obedient? Absolutely. In fact, Jesus says you should be. If you know these things, if you know the importance of servanthood and obedience, happy are you if you do them. So don't feel guilty if you feel happy that by God's grace you're being obedient. And don't assume that that is spiritual pride, although it is proper to guard ourselves against spiritual pride. All right, great questions. Let's close in prayer and we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for the encouraging words of the Lord Jesus all throughout Scripture, but here where we've closed tonight, John 13, where he tells us, if you know these things, blessed are you, happy are you if you do them. And we recognize that as we, by your grace, seek to walk in obedience, we do have a happiness, a joy, a a satisfaction, a contentment that uh, can't be matched by the world. Just a deep-seated satisfaction and happiness being thankful that by your grace we're able to walk in obedience. May each and every one of us in this room experience that blessedness, that happiness this week, this month, this year, until Jesus comes, in whose name we pray, amen.